Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. It's record-breakingly hot outside, actually pretty hot in the studio too, and politics is hotting up as well. So fix yourself a nice cool drink and join us trying to make sense of a week that's definitely brought the summer holidays to a close. Keir Starmer has reshuffled his Labour shadow ministerial team. So who's in, who's out, and what does it tell us about his plans for the election campaign, and maybe for government? Julian Keegan, the Education Secretary, has also been feeling the heat and facing difficult questions over the ongoing concrete crisis in schools and coming up with some rather colourful comments. We'll take a look at the problem and where it might go next. And then we'll head up to the Midlands and take a look at what's gone wrong at Birmingham City Council, which this week declared itself effectively bankrupt. So what went wrong? Could it happen elsewhere? And what will it mean for the debate over giving power away from Westminster? I'm delighted to be joined by... An excellent team to discuss all these issues. My IFG colleague, Nick Davies, who's Programme Director for our Public Services Work, is here in the studio with me. Hi, Nick. How are you? I am very well. And we're joined again by IFG Senior Fellow and former Government Advisor, Sam Friedman. Hi, Sam. Hello. And I'm delighted that Alita Adu, political correspondent at The Guardian, is here to make her IFG podcast debut. Hi, Alita. Have you had a busy return to Parliament? Hello. Yes, it's been an extremely busy week. (laughs) Back to earth with a bang, I think. Well, last week we began talking about Rishi Sunak's mini, or even you might say micro reshuffle, but Keir Starmer's attempted something rather more dramatic. Alita, what's the significance, would you say, of what Starmer has done to his team? Yeah, so this is the final shake-up ahead of the next general election. And obviously, the shadow cabinet is now filled predominantly with people that have worked under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. They have arguably quite a lot of influence over the party currently. Tony Blair sort of offering himself as an unofficial advisor, some would say. There's now a lot of experience, people that haven't only been in, in politics for an extremely long time, but people who also have experience of working in a government, who know what it's like to get things done, to develop policies and also shape a vision and continue promoting that to the public. And we've got the likes of Patrick McFadden, who was one of the stars of the early Blair years after the 97 election win. He was Tony Blair's advisor, all the way through to becoming the Prime Minister's Director of Comms. Got Hilary Benn, who's held a number of ministerial roles, an incredible performer in the chamber. He's made a number of incredible speeches. And we've also got the likes of Liz Kendall, who also might not have had as much experience in uh, the Brown years as she just joined in 2010. But arguably, she's a very unashamed Blairite, you could say. And she tried to oust Corbyn with her own leadership campaign. And arguably, it's her leadership team that are still holding a lot of influence within the party now. We've got her former leadership campaign director, Morgan McSweeney, who is responsible for a lot of Labour's campaigns going on at the moment. And also Matthew Doyle, who is the party's director of communications, who is also playing quite a big role towards Liz Kendall's failed leadership campaign. You must remember she came last. But ultimately, it's quite interesting how things have turned, almost gone back to 2015. It's like a complete reset after the Corbyn years. I believe Starmer has waited years to finally show the public that he's got a shadow cabinet that is ready for government. No more internal dramas, well, not as much before, because... He has people that are very much on his side. Sam, what was your reading of the reshuffle? Who would you say were the big winners and losers? The big winner is Starmer, clearly, because he's 
been able to get more of the people he feels will support and back his position into the right places. I'm not sure a kind of Blairite, Brownite, whatever, Corbynite analysis is the best way of thinking about Labour politics at the moment, because those terms have sort of all become rather outdated and a bit blurred. What was interesting to me is sort of thinking about where Blair's cabinet was in 96, where previous Labour governments before that were, Starmer's going to have a remarkably compliant cabinet compared to the even Blair and the sort of leaders, but even more so than the leaders before that. Even Blair had people like Claire Short, Frank Dobson, Robin Cook, who had a different political philosophy, had a big profile outside of his own. It's sort of an interesting continuation, I guess, of the shift we've seen under this government towards this almost presidential style of politics, where the cabinet or shadow cabinet members are just so much less important and have less stature than they used to. Uh, and so much more goes through the leader's office, the prime minister's office. And that has sort of pluses to make party discipline easier and makes it easier for the government to sort of have a single message and a single voice on issues, but also minuses in that there's sort of much more centralisation sort of within cabinets and shadow cabinets and much more sort of emphasis on what happens in the leader's office rather than in, uh, in shadow teams than perhaps we've had before. And what do you think it means for policy development? Because... Obviously, this is a shadow team that didn't really, I mean, maybe by this time last year, they were just about starting to believe that they they had a chance at this next election. They've had to quickly pivot from reorganising their own party to, to thinking about being a party of government. Do you think that having, as you describe it, a more compliant team of, of people who don't have that intellectual heft in their own right so obviously yet, is going to be problematic for Labour in developing its policy agenda. Well, I think what it tells us is that policy development is a very centralised process for Labour at the moment. I think, you know, a lot it's going through Starmer's team and Reeves' team, Rachel Reeves' team, and there isn't a lot of room for manoeuvre. When I look at, say, the space that Bridget Phillipson has to develop policy on schools versus the space Michael Gove had when I was working with him back in 2009... It's a very different picture. There's much more central control over what she's allowed to say, whereas we were, we sort of freelanced a lot more. We were quite unusual, perhaps, but I don't think we were the only shadow team then in sort of 2008, nine that were doing that. So I, th- I think it sort of puts a lot more pressure on Starmer and Reeves' team to get policy development right because they're getting less support from shadow teams and giving less space and capacity to shadow teams to develop their own policy. Nick, you think about these things from a public services point of view. There wasn't much movement in terms of the reshuffle in the big jobs relating to public services. Presumably, you think that's a good thing in relation to this point about policy development. So there was stability in some of the key shadow cabinet positions covering health, education and the Home Office. And as you say, I think that probably is a good thing. We've done a lot of work showing the impact that ministerial churn has on effective government. And the same is true as opposition, that frequent reshuffles disrupt the relations between shadow ministers and also policy development. And shadow ministers will tend to find that they're a bit of an advantage if they enter government with a well-developed plan for the brief they're given. That said, there has been quite a lot of churn elsewhere. So we have new shadow secretaries of state covering justice and local government. And across the Labour front bench, there's actually been a fairly dramatic amount of change amongst more junior shadow ministers. So it's kind of yet to be seen what impact that has on policy development, as Sam says, within the kind of relatively tight constraints that Starmer and Reeves' office have given those shadow teams. 
I think the consensus seems to be, although open to any of you contradicting this, that this is going to be the last Labour reshuffle before an election. Nick, what would you be hoping to now hear from the people in these key public services related posts? Look, I mean, I would obviously like to see a fully worked out plan for government, but being realistic, we're not going to see that in opposition. I suppose what I'd like to see is at least some signs that they're doing some deep thinking about the big problems facing public services. So, for example, productivity problems in the NHS and particularly hospitals, which Sam has written for us on, the financial hole that much of local government is in, which we're going to discuss later. Recognition that in the criminal justice system, current policing and sentencing policy is creating demand downstream in courts and particularly prisons that can't be handled. And I guess across public services, how they're going to set public sector pay to avoid the disruptive strikes that we've seen over the past year, but also to meet the wider recruitment and retention goals of public services. And obviously, we're more interested in in the substance of what Labour is proposing, should it get into government. But Alita, are there any interesting new pairings of government and shadow ministers we should be watching out for where those personality clashes are going to be interesting to watch? I think it's quite interesting that Angela Rayner has been able to draw her shadow living out department with all of her allies, essentially. I think she'll find that incredibly reassuring and she'll get that support that she needs to show that she can deliver a shadow department that's quite different to what Michael Gove is proposing. I believe that's what many of Starmer's team had an issue towards Lisa Nandy, let's say. But also, I think it's quite interesting that David Lammy has been paired with Lisa Nandy. Lisa Nandy was formerly Shadow Foreign Secretary, and now she has essentially been demoted working as David Lammy's number two. She is showing with her social media presence and taking on the role earlier this week that she's very keen to just be a team player and to help get the party ready for government. We'll just have to see how long this camaraderie continues. For all the headlines about the reshuffle, the story of the week is undoubtedly the ongoing concrete crisis in schools. Nick, can you give us a quick recap about what's gone wrong? So between the 1950s and mid-90s, there was widespread use of reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete or rack uh, across lots of public sector buildings. Unfortunately, it's far less durable than normal concrete and many buildings that used it are beyond their life cycle already and there's a real risk of them collapsing without warning as has already happened to some schools. As a result, more than 100 schools have been ordered to fully or partially close and there are hundreds more that are potentially at risk. And so from what you're saying, Nick, but essentially this was inevitable that this issue would start to emerge over time because it's just a, a life that this material has. Indeed, it was inevitable that these buildings would come to the end of their life cycle and the Department for Education has known about the problem for years but has not taken sufficient action to address it. So in the 2021 spending review, the department said that it needed funding to rebuild three to 400 schools a year, but the Treasury only provided funding for rebuilding around 50 schools a year. And that follows pretty deep cuts to the Department for Education capital budget in the year before the pandemic. So I guess in answer to your question, if you have a crumbling school estate, but consistently underinvest in it, then it's pretty inevitable that something is going to go wrong. Sam, you, as you've already said, used to work in the... DFE. So presumably this story was no surprise to you. 
No, I mean, I, I felt I spent the week feeling like Cassandra in, in that I remember sitting with Treasury officials back in 2010, my head in my hand saying, look, if you won't give us more money, this maintenance bill is just going to keep going to go up and up. There's so many schools that are coming to the end of their natural design life. Surely you 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 can't be so short-termist as to not see this problem. But of course, they have been then and subsequently in every budget and spending review since then. And the DfE has made the same request as I made over and over again and got nowhere to the sort of point that Jonathan Slater, the former permanent secretary on the Today programme, was complaining that Rishi Sunak, when he was chancellor, turned turned them down for a more substantive bid on on school capital as well. And it's not just schools, it's hospitals as well. I think, you know, the, the report that Nick mentioned earlier that I wrote for you guys on NHS productivity, lack of investment in capital is a massive issue there too. And true in other parts of the public state as as well. So I think the rack issue is just the start of what's going to become a bigger and bigger challenge for this government, the next government, and thereafter. We've got a maintenance bill across just schools and hospitals that's now approaching twenty three billion pounds, and only going to get bigger the longer we delay sort of serious investment in in, in capital. So. This particular sort of scandal is, is containable and manageable, and I'm sure will be will be dealt with over the next few weeks, albeit that it was handled quite badly to start with. But it is sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of the problems with public sector infrastructure to come. Nick, I mean, I guess you've been feeling fairly Cassandra-like as well, because the IFG has done plenty of work under your leadership of the public services team that has identified problems with cuts to capital budgets. There were deep cuts to capital budgets after 2010. So for DFE, it was around 20%. For the Ministry of Justice, it was over half. Even Department for Health and Social Care, which was relatively protected, saw cuts of nearly 10%. But I think the key point is that isn't just a problem since 2010. We already had very low investment in public sector capital before that. And we have consistently invested far less than other wealthy nations. And fixing that is 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 going to be expensive you know and in the long run you might be able to kind of get a better mix between capital and day-to-day spending but in the short term if you want to fix the problems then you're just going to need to boost capital spending and that money's going to need to come from somewhere and elita i don't want to um, offend the sensibilities of our listeners by repeating exactly what Gillian Keegan said but do you think when she was caught on her off mic moment and said essentially she felt she'd taken action when other people had failed to do so in the past. This is what she was getting at, that actually over time, politicians haven't been very good at investing for the long term in things like capital and the the maintenance of schools. And she felt she was the one who'd actually made the difficult decision. Yes. But I mean, ultimately, the public are getting quite tired of ministers trying to pass the buck and saying, oh, it's not our fault. We've done all that we can when they've been in power for 13 years now. Obviously, she hasn't been education secretary for that long. But ultimately, I mean, that's the sort of responsibility you take on when you take on a a brief like that. And I think those sort of comments and remarks have only served the Labour Party, to be honest, who have been having a really fun week of using their social media to really hit the Conservatives with all kinds of attack ads that have been controversial in the past and now seem to be working quite well for them and gaining quite a lot of traction that is not really good for Rishi Sunak or the party the first week back of parliament, essentially. What I think is also quite remarkable about this crisis is that, obviously, we've got the prime minister saying 95% of schools were unaffected, but it's remarkable that at least around 36 of the schools are in the seats of government front benches, including 13 cabinet ministers. Now, that's some analysis that The Guardian did earlier this week. 
And also around 100,000 students attend around 147 of the named schools that were confirmed by the government just before Prime Minister's questions this week. It's quite crass to be, for, the, for the Prime Minister and his government to be able to say, oh, most of the schools are unaffected when parents have been making quite a lot of sacrifices getting their kids ready. Of course, yes, um, as Nick highlighted, they have been aware of this crisis for a really long time and it's something that's going to be pouring into different sectors, sadly, and it's a crisis that will be unfortunately unfolding for many weeks. I mean, they've really got to get a grip on the cost of fixing these schools because I believe secondary schools will be you know, at least three times as high the bill for fixing in comparison to primary schools. So we'll just have to see how this unfolds over the next few weeks. Sam, electorally, is this a classic schoolgate issue? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Tories are doing so badly in the polls already, they probably haven't got much further to fall at this point. In the first few polls we've had since this story broke, haven't, haven't been any different. Every week that's taken up with something like this means that there's less space for them to do anything else in the run up to the, towards the election, less space to change the narrative or gain any momentum. And the more it builds this sort of wider narrative of a tired, crumbling country that is ready for a change, which obviously is the kind of standard narrative that accompanies an opposition winning an election. So... I'm not sure how much worse it can get for them, but it doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon. And Nick, what's the solution? I mean, ultimately, it probably just comes down to money. You know, as Sam said, it's 23 billion backlog and maintenance across the NHS and schools. If you chuck in criminal courts, prisons and roads, you're up to over 40 billion pounds there. And that's just maintenance backlogs. If you actually want to build uh, new hospitals or schools or court or anything else, it's, it's just going to require quite a lot of money. And as I said, you know, in the long run, you might be able to better balance capital and, and day-to-day spending. But in the short term, if you're a government coming in, you're, you're going to need to think about ways to increase capital spending, maybe through borrowing or cuts or elsewhere or whatever. But otherwise, these problems are going to continue. And it's not just the dramatic things like collapsing buildings. It is a daily like drag on the productivity of these services. And the most expensive thing in all of these services is staff. And it's just much harder for them to do their jobs if they're operating out of crumbling buildings on outdated IT and don't have the latest equipment. I think the critical thing all parties will be looking for, Nick, is the answer to that whatever in your sentence back there of where this money is going to come from. I mean, I would just say, I think one critical question is, is what Labour do with the fiscal rules when it comes to capital spending? Gordon Brown's fiscal rule did not include capital spending, which allowed them to invest a lot more in, in infrastructure, though, as Nick said earlier, still not enough. Jeremy Hunt's fiscal rule does include capital spending, which is one of the reasons it's being sort of constrained at the moment. So I think that's, it's sort of quite techie, but it's a huge decision in terms of how much space they're going to have on, on this question. That's a really good point, Sam. And happily, the IFG has some forthcoming work on fiscal rules, so you can all look out for that. Now, if anyone had a worse week than Gillian Keegan, it was probably Birmingham City Council. Nick, I'm going to turn to you again. Can you let us know what happened and how? So Birmingham has issued what is known as a Section 114 notice. It doesn't quite mean that it's gone bankrupt, but it does mean that it's unable to meet its spending commitments given its income. The immediate cause of this is a huge liability, the best part of three quarters of a billion pounds relating to an historic equal pay settlement, plus around 100 million more that they've had to spend on an IT 
project. But the kind of underlying factor is that Birmingham's spending power has also fallen by nearly a quarter since 2010 due to big cuts to their central government grant. And all that combined has left it with a budget deficit of the best part of a hundred million pounds in this year. And what does this actually mean for people who are living in Birmingham? It's going to mean cuts. So the local authority is unable to commit to any new spending and it's going to have to make cuts to some services. It might have to raise council tax and it also might have to sell off some of its assets. So the the people of Birmingham are going to get less and might need to pay more for it. But Birmingham is not an exception, is it? This isn't the first time this has happened. No, it's not. So it joins a number of other local authorities that have issued Section 114 notices. Uh, So recent examples include Croydon, Thurrock and Woking. All of those issued Section 114s in the wake of debt financed investments um, going wrong in some way. And all of the councils that have issued these notices have broadly been mismanaged in some way. However, there are severe financial pressures on even well-run councils, and a lot of them have been warning about their financial position. So it wouldn't be surprising to see one of those well-run councils issuing a Section 114 in the relatively near future. Alita, this is a Labour-run city council. Has the political fallout begun from that fact? Are people going to link this to the Labour Party at Westminster? Yes, I mean, Birmingham and Labour's CLP within the space has been facing a trouble for the past few months, to be honest. Around May, April time, many of its CLP and councillors were reporting of issues of misogyny and racism in the party, and that forced its former leader to be ousted. Off the back of that, there were these sort of financial issues that were always bubbling in the pot. Now, obviously, the chickens have come home to roost. And I think a problem that Labour will find trouble sort of distancing themselves away from is trying to sort of pass the buck. Obviously, there has been a lot of cuts that has been ruining their ability to manage finances. But ultimately, it just seems as though internal political disputes have been hampering efforts to get this council out of trouble at the moment. So I think this will continue to bubble as people get ready to head to party conference in the next few weeks. We will just have to wait and see how this unfolds. Sam, Jeremy Hunt has said that the government will do what is right for Birmingham. What does that mean, do you think? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure they know what it means yet. I think the there's sort of an immediate problem in Birmingham and in a num- number of those other councils that Nick mentioned that have sort of been poorly mismanaged and will probably require a bit of additional central government help in some form to get back to being able to to cope. But there's a bigger issue, bigger question about sort of the long term financing model for local government, which is pretty broken at this stage, partly just because of the level of cuts local government has had, but also because they are increasingly dependent on council tax revenues. That was a deliberate decision made by by this government. But most residents don't see much benefit to those council taxes because those council taxes are spent almost entirely now on a small number of statutory duties that affect a small number of people, namely social care, children's services, like children's homes, and so on. So it's getting harder and harder, I think, for councils to justify to the people living in those areas why they need so much money when when most people are not seeing that direct benefit. Labour will need to sort of look completely differently at the way government financing works and sort of look at it alongside the, the sort of development of Metro, Mayor, regions, I think when we're talking about devolution, we've got to remember that there's sort of local authorities like Birmingham, and then there's mayoral regions like West Midlands. 
and who you devolve to within that and which powers go where makes a big difference. You could pull powers up from somewhere like Birmingham to a mayoral region as well. It doesn't necessarily require putting powers down to the level of, of, of individual local authorities and councils. So there's a lot of big structural and financing questions for the next government to look at, which is becoming, I imagine, quite a theme of these podcasts and a big job for assuming they win Angela Rayner to be to be doing. Nick, I'm going to come to you and ask what the sorts of options are for for reforming local government finance. But before I do that, just to pick up on the point you were making there, Sam, about different layers of governance at a devolved level. It's interesting, isn't it? In the West Midlands, the Conservatives have got quite a big local player in in the form of Andy Street, the mayor. What's his role in this? Is there anything, any part that he has to play in, in sorting this out? I mean, the current model of the West Midlands mayor is that there is relatively weak. He has he has some powers, but not as many as, say, Andy Burnham does in Manchester. And even Andy Burnham would would not have enough to, to particularly sort out the kind of problems Birmingham are having. So we've ended up with this sort of being a discussion between the local authority and the national government with this this sort of mayoral level being being rather left out of the picture. I think there is a strong case over time for powers to be pushed down from the centre and up from individual local authorities towards the mayoral level. I think the mayors have shown that they are more locally accountable. Having a single named person makes you more easily accountable than the sort of councillor system uh, and you get more sort of local media sort of attention as well. So there's a, I think there's a strong accountability argument and there's also a strong scale argument. It's just easier to manage larger economic areas. And I kind of suspect Labour will end up going in that direction. But as yet, we have very little information about their plans. Nick, I was going to come to you and say, what do we know about what Labour are thinking about this? And in a very broadest sense, I'm not asking you to to give us a detailed prescription, but what are the options that they might look at? So there are things they can do around, I think, probably certainty, flexibility, allocation and the total level of funding. And Labour has answers to some of those, but not to others. So on certainty, Lisa Nandy, who previously had that brief, said that Labour would give local authorities three-year funding agreements, which would enable them to plan their spending much better and would mean, for example, that they probably become less reliant on more expensive agency staff that is all the people they can hire when they're given kind of last-minute funding increases to deal with things like social care. They could increase flexibility. So at the moment, a lot of local government funding comes through competitive grants that are very restricted and local authorities spend a lot of time bidding for those and then can only spend them on a very narrow range of things. Whereas if they could pool all of the money they have and think about how best to allocate that, they might be able to spend more efficiently. There's also, I guess, how you allocate the total amount of funding that central government provides to local government. Conservative-led governments had previously considered a a fair funding formula, but it's been consistently delayed, uh, partly because there's going to be some winners, but there are going to be some losers as well from that, and it's going to be politically difficult. And then ultimately, it comes about the, the total level of funding. So that, again, is partly about the level of grants that central government can provide, but also about the flexibility that local government has to raise funds through council tax predominantly, which they have limits on how much they can raise that, but also through things like business rates and charges as well. And do you think this is likely to have consequences for Labour's wider policy development? They've talked a lot about giving away power and making government less centralised. They've committed to devolution. Do you think incidents like this will shake their confidence and their, their willingness to do that should they get into government? 
And it's quite interesting, especially given the reshuffle and who's sort of overseeing these policy areas at the moment. From where we're standing now, I'd say it's probably unlikely to affect those plans they've already laid out. Obviously, the party are very keen to keep their clouds close to their chest and not really commit to anything that the Conservatives could sort of pounce on and be like, well, this has happened in Birmingham and already they're committing to this. So I think for now, they will remain to sort of... (laughs) try and let this drama unfold and let Birmingham try and sort themselves out. But possibly in the new year, we could hear on some new plans as they get ready to really showcase their offering to the country. And that's it for today. Thank you to Nick Davies, Sam Friedman and Alita Adu. Really great that you could join us. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. As Julia Keegan might say, does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a very good job. Well, you can. You can leave us a really nice review. Before we go, a reminder that over the summer we put out a brilliant six-part series which reveals what it takes to be a minister. Well worth listening back to if, for example, you've just been reshuffled into a big ministerial job. And check out the IFG website for all our latest commentary on the big stories of the week, details of our exciting party conference fringe event programme, and to sign up to an upcoming IFG event at which the keynote speaker is a former Prime Minister head to our website to find who I am talking about and what they will be talking about. Stay cool, everyone. See you next week.